The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, comes from Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we will read the chapter in its entirety. Adam now lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions, and some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offspring, Offering, excuse me, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you, who are under, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahushal, and Mahushal was the father of Methushal, and Methushal was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. 
If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would speak to us this day through it. That you would cause your Holy Spirit to guide and direct our thoughts. And that your word would go forth and accomplish all that you have set out for it to do. That it would not return empty and void. We pray, Lord, that you would use it in a mighty way. We pray for your speaker, that he would have clarity of thought and speech. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the uh, life of the early church, uh, one of the greatest theologians of the time uh, began writing a book that would later become known as one of the great enduring classic works of the church. And this particular book that I'm talking about is a book that shows Augustine in his fullest, most mature Christian thought. And it is a book that truly has shaped the church and would continue to shape it for centuries. And this book is called The City of God. And the City of God centers on the development of two cities, really, the city of God and the city of man. And as the book unfolds, one of Augustine's main points is so basic that it's brilliant and is often overlooked. But it's brilliant because it informs the whole of Scripture as we understand it. Augustine says that ultimately in this world, there are two kinds of people. Those who belong to the celestial city of God, to the kingdom of God itself, and those who belong to the city of man, or to the kingdom of Satan itself. In other words, every man, woman, and child belongs to one of these two kingdoms. They can only serve one master. They only have one father. Either the seed of God is within them, or the seed of the devil himself. Even as 1 John tells us this morning, there is a clear contrast being made. There is no middle ground to hide in. Jesus himself said, you are either for me or you are against me. Either you are a child of God or you are the child of the devil. There is no in-between. And Augustine will go on in his work to describe the glory of the city of God that true believers in Christ Jesus belong to. He will describe its superiority and use it as an apologetic tool to uh, preach to the nations. But his basic point will continue to resound. It will continue to echo within the church. There are two cities and two Kingdoms, And this is one biblical truth that informs all of the rest of the scriptures. 
that there are these two kingdoms and that there is enmity between them. Rather, I should say that the scripture informs this truth, as we will see even this morning. And it all started back in our text this morning of Genesis 4, where we see the emergence of two seeds, two peoples on radically different trajectories, headed in radically different directions. The whole of Scripture, and Genesis especially, will detail this struggle that happens between these two lines. One with God's promise that these particular lines, or this particular promise, will be honored from him. And as we look at this text this morning, the first thing that I want us to see is a household divided. A household divided. Right on the heels of the fall of Adam and Eve and their banishment away from the presence of God, away from the Garden of Eden, and away from this dwelling place where man and God were together, we immediately learn that Adam knows Eve, and Eve conceives and has a child. In other words, though this world has been marred by sin, we saw the extent and the depth of this sin. Though this world has been marred by their sin, this world will forever be shaped by it. And yet Adam and Eve have still been given a task to do. They are still God's creatures and they were created and called to fill this world and to subdue it. And our text, as it unfolds, it's clear that that is what they are beginning to do. I mean, they are beginning to procreate and multiply upon the earth and each of their children will begin to do their part as well to subdue the earth. And this mandate is still there for man to accomplish but as the text unfolds and as it, uh, as it begins to open up for us, Eve makes this very interesting pronouncement about her firstborn son. And scripture tells us that she named her son Cain, which means gotten or acquired. For I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. Why is Eve saying this? I mean, it seems to be a, a strange speech that she is declaring. What is on Eve's mind as she makes this declaration? Uh, really, it seems odd to include it here in the scripture, but notice what Eve is thinking about here is the promise that God made to her. The promise that she, he made to her and her husband back in the garden before God sent them out of the garden away from his presence that through the woman he would bring forth a seed who would crush the head of the serpent and end this pain and misery that they have brought upon themselves by their disobedience to God. Eve is thinking about that child promised who would come who would set them free from the bonds of sin and misery. And so Eve makes an announcement that is grounded in hope. Here is one who will deliver us. Here is a son of Adam, a child that has been prophesied about, or prophesied about. I have birthed a child who will deliver us from the serpent and crush his head, for he is the firstborn son of Adam. Surely, if anyone is here to fulfill this promise, it will be him. Unfortunately, 
It's this very pronouncement that Eve makes that makes the story of Cain and Abel so much more tragic. Eve, in her naivety, has not yet learned just how far and how deep and how wide the curse runs. The fullest extent of the curse has not yet been realized. Alice does not yet know how far the rabbit hole goes. And so she makes this pronouncement that will prove to be the foil of this text. It will be her undoing. And so shortly after Eve's announcement, we are introduced to the second son who gets very little airtime. You'll notice it's, you know, he was born. Uh, his name is Abel. And not much is said about him because surely the hope of the kingdom of God being restored is not going to come through this child. He's just sort of uh, looked over. It's the first child that all of our attention is set upon. And interestingly, though, Abel's name means breath or vapor, something that seems to prophesy about him, the short life Abel will have. Something here one minute and gone the next. It will be gone in a moment. Yet our text tells us that these children of Adam and Eve, these brothers, they begin to subdue the earth. Just as Eve slowly is filling the world one child at a time, her children become workers of the ground and keepers of livestock. One toiling to subdue the ground to his will, and the other subduing the animals upon the face of this, this earth. They're both doing what they have been called to do. They are fulfilling their cultural mandate given to them in the creation account. And things seem to be going well. But as time passes, a shift takes place. Verse 3 says it came to pass, or as time went on, it happened that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground, of the fruit of the ground. But Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of that from the fatty portion. Each of these men are acting as a priest to God, very much following in line with their father, Adam. They are being priests, offering sacrifices to God, seeking to worship him and to honor him. And yet, before you go any further, we already see a contrast is being made between these two men, where God accepts one and rejects the other. The house begins to divide here. God looks on Abel's sacrifice with pleasure and he accepts it, but not upon Cain. And the question is, why? Why accept the offering of one and not the other? Why accept Abel and not Cain? What is the difference arising between these two men who are both children of Adam, both brothers from the same womb, both coming as priests to worship God and offer sacrifices? They are similar people, and yet the text is making it clear that something divides them from one another. Even in verses 3 and 4, there is a slight shift in the wording in the Hebrew that hints that there is a difference between these two men, a difference in the way that they are bringing the sacrifices and the sacrifices themselves that they bring. In this text, as you study in chapter 4, the worshiper and the sacrifices themselves are inseparable. Cain brings some of his fruit, and in the Hebrew it says, but Abel brought 
the firstborn, the fatty portions. An emphasis is being made about Abel and his acceptable sacrifice. Cain brought a sacrifice, but Abel brought a pleasing sacrifice. But why? Again, what makes Abel acceptable and Cain not? What does the text emphasize as different about these two men and these two sacrifices? Clearly, there's a difference between the men themselves and the way they offer their sacrifices, just as their sacrifices themselves are clearly different. They reflect the other here. The sacrifice reflects the men. The men reflect the sacrifice. Abel brings forth the firstborn of the flock, or the very first, the very best of it. And then he offers the fatty portion of the animal, He is offering the best of the best of the best to God. There is nothing greater that Abel could bring before God. Whereas Cain, you'll notice, only brings some of his fruit. There's no clear demarcation that he made any attempt to bring the first fruits or to bring the best fruits. He has simply brought a portion of the whole. In other words, one of the major differences is that Cain's spirit isn't right here as he brings this offering, as he brings this sacrifice. He comes seeking God's blessing upon him by bringing his leftovers. You know, God knows a man's heart. He knows when an offering is acceptable and pleasing, when a man gives all that he has or gives the best of what he has. And one commentator suggests that Cain merely looks religious in this place, but his heart is not in it. He is not dependent upon God for all things. He has no faith in this God to deliver. Cain looks religious, but God who looks on the heart, he knows Cain is prideful, that he has raised himself up, that he has demonstrated this in his sacrifice that he is not dependent on God alone, something that a sacrifice should clearly demonstrate. Because you bring the first, you bring the best, and it is ex- you, you depend on him to bring in the rest. And so God cannot accept Cain. Whereas Abel comes in humble faith. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Hebrews 11 tells us that his faith, in his faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And God commended him by accepting his gain, gifts. God saw that Abel came in faith and in repentance, you'll notice. But secondly, not only is the difference between these men and their spirits and how They come, but there is a difference between the sacrifices offered. The nature of the sacrifice itself is important here. And this is something that men like John Calvin and Matthew Henry have emphasized over and over again. It's not just that Cain's spirit is the heart of the problem here, it's the nature of what he offers. Notice Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice was one that implies that he knew he was a sinner in need of atonement. 
That is what a blood sacrifice always highlights. The need of atonement, the need of reconciliation between these two parties. Abel, in other words, he knows that he is guilty. And he knows that he has uh, need to have this sin removed from him, that he may be acceptable to God. He knows that he is a sinner conceived in the sin of the, the uh, conceived in sin as a child of Adam. And he is totally dependent on God for mercy in this life. And by faith, Abel rests in the promises of God, the promises given even earlier in Genesis chapter 3. And because he rests in these promises, he makes a pleasing sacrifice to God out of faith. God sees his heart, is humbled, and repentant and dependent on him. And so he accepts him. But Cain, Cain sees no need to humble himself and repent. Notice, he gets angry at God for not accepting his sacrifice. He is blaming God for God's rejection of Cain. And it's unacceptable Offering. It's the same thing Adam did back in the garden, back in chapter 3. It's not my fault. I didn't do what was right. It's the woman that you gave me. It's not my fault I didn't bring a lamb. You gave me the ground to work, and I worked it, and I offer these, and you reject me, never admitting to himself that he is wrong. Cain's Pride drives a wedge between himself and God, so much so that Cain can't even see that he could still humble himself and go to his brother for a lamb to offer a proper sacrifice that would atone for sins or communicate the need for atonement of his sins so that he could approach God as a repentant sinner. I mean, that's basically what God offers for him to do when he says to him, why are you so angry, Cain? I mean, if you do what is right, if you humble yourself, if you bring a proper offering that shows you are dependent on me, if you humble yourself before me, I will accept you. But Cain refuses to hear God's word. He hardens his heart against him, and his countenance is hardened against him, and he says nothing. But by his actions, we learn that he has allowed sin to have mastery over him. He has risen up against God, determined to be the master in this land. Cain responds to God's questions and declaration of mercy that could be found in him by going out into a field with his brother and slaying him. This one who was pleasing to God This one who is acceptable in God's sight. And by Cain's actions, by his murder, by his hating his brethren, he rejects the king of heaven. He rejects a lord over him, declaring that he will be lord of himself. The kingdom of God and even God himself will have no hold over him. His words and his promises mean nothing to Cain. He has thrown them all away. But Cain's belief, unbelief 
and his sin quickly lead to a cursing of Cain. A cursing of Cain. In verse 9, we get almost a, a repeat of this judgment seen in the garden, you'll notice. You know, God comes and he begins to ask questions to Cain because he has a just God dealing fairly. You know, but Cain's response is one of a hardened heart. And his answer, it's just absurd what he says. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, he's playing at innocent with the God of the universe who knows all things. And he seeks to hide his sin away from God, pretending that it does not even exist. He takes no responsibility for his actions. At least with Adam back in the garden, there is a sense of responsibility there. When he actually admits his actions, though he has blamed most of it on God and on his wife, he does still say, I ate. But not so with Cain. Cain is hardened against God. He refuses to turn from his sins. He wants nothing to do with him. And so God proceeds to judge him. And what is this thing that you have done? It's the indignation of God. Your brother's blood cries out against you. You won't answer me. You will not tell me what you have done, but your brother's blood speaks and it cries out from the ground. I hear the innocent voice of your brother whose blood you shed. The ground which swallowed up your brother's blood is now cursed because of you. It is cursed from your hand. Notice how often The text is repeating brother, brother, brother here. Scripture is emphasizing this relationship here of brotherhood. It's actually repeated seven times throughout the text. There is a severity or a severancing of this connection between himself and his brothers. Cain has irreparably severed the relationship to his brethren, no longer Will he stand next to any of his brothers in the kingdom of God and call them brothers? But he has separated himself from that line. He is a hater of brothers and of the brotherhood. And because of his actions to do these things, God says, you will be separated from your brothers because you hate them. You will be a wanderer upon this earth. The punishment fits the crime here, you know. You hated your brother, and you estranged yourself from him by murdering him. Therefore, I will send you as a roaming wanderer, estranged from the rest of God's house. Your brother's blood cried out to me from the ground, which you defiled. Therefore, it will no longer yield to you. What a fitting punishment that is given to him and yet though this is the case that the punishment fits the crime Cain cries out it's too much it's too much for me to bear I cannot bear this burden that you have given notice he has pity for himself though he showed none for his brother he fears to die though he shows absolutely no remorse for taking his own brother's life and taking his brother's Uh, livingness from him. Again, there is no repentance here, no sign of repentance whatsoever. He is hardened in his sin. His only concern is for his self-preservation. He is so blinded by his own needs that he fails to see 
they were the same needs as his brother. Picard condescends to him and he sets a hedge of protection around Cain. He will not allow Cain to be harmed. He marks him. He will not allow him to be judged by any save by God alone. And again, just as with Adam and Eve, God would have been within his full right to wipe Cain away from the face of the earth. And yet, he is long-suffering with Cain. He will not deliver ultimate justice immediately. Cain will be dealt with when his life ends. He will indeed pay for his crimes. His unbelief will cost him dearly in the end. And yet for now, God places Cain under a certain kind of common grace. This isn't a saving grace that is given to him, but it is a grace of long-suffering until the time when all the people of God are gathered in. Notice here, was this banishment of Cain to the land of Nod, to the land of the wanderer, which was what Nod means. Notice how all of the hopes that have been set up for us by Eve's announcement have just been crushed. I mean, this one is born as a firstborn son. This is the one that we expect and that we hope for good things to come from the one we expect to be strongest and the greatest, able to crush the head of the serpent in his father's stead. And instead, he is subdued by the serpent. He is no better than his father before him. He is worse off, in fact. And in reality, he himself is the seed of the serpent. He is not a child of God, belonging to God's city, but to the kingdom of darkness. But God isn't done yet. Just because we expect things to come through Cain and they have not, doesn't mean that God has finished his work here. God rather works through weakness. This is a pattern of him throughout all of scripture. He works through weaknesses, not through strength. He works in unexpected ways to bring his plan of salvation to completion. And we see this come full circle when we see the two seeds and their cities. The two seeds and their cities. As you come to verse 17, this discourse where uh, Cain's line is followed out begins to unfold. And Cain takes one of his sisters for a wife and he builds a city, naming it after his own son. Notice though, though he has been cast from the presence of God, though he is no longer belonging to the city of God, he is still fulfilling the cultural mandate given to him. There are some good things that actually come out from here, from Cain's line. There are good things that come from the city of man. There is a family life here that is very evident. There is music. There is metalworking. There is an advancement in architecture as uh, it is a city, and a city is always composed of buildings and with some kind of wall around it, protecting it from the outside. There are good things happening here in the city of man. Though this entire people, this entire generation and whole uh, entire family that Cain is raising up is separated from God. 
And these verses from 17 through 24, they talk about how Cain's line continues. The seed of the world who hates God, it continues and it grows and it becomes more all-encompassing. Notice how in this, the generations that are given, this seed of Cain that continues to spiral downward and out of control, that there are seven generations listed here in Scripture. And I point that out because these are not haphazard things in the Scripture. There is a completeness here to what is going on in the city of man. What Cain has begun as separating himself from God has spiraled, it has deepened, it is uh, continuing outward. It is becoming more full and complete. The sin is becoming more severe and more celebrated, even as it culminates in the song of Lamech, this one who perverts the marriage bed by taking on two wives instead of one. And then he goes on to basically brag about how he is even greater than Cain because for wounding a man, the, you know, the Hebrew actually says for bruising me, I have killed a man. I have also killed a youth for hitting me or striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. Lamech revels in the debauchery of the city of man. He has no fear of God in this place. Man has established a kingdom and domain that seems separated from God. No judgment of God seems able to touch this place and it causes Lamech to revel in his sins. That the city prospers. Its cultural fulfillment of, and the commandments given to men, it prospers in fact because God's judgment is delayed. And because God's judgment is delayed, man has no fear before the face of God. Lamech even feels vindicated, thinking, surely God will avenge me if any touch me. He believes his sin is justified and even looked well upon by God in his pronouncement. The rabbit hole, it just continues to go further down and further away from where it all started. Where man walked once with God in perfect fellowship in the garden. There was perfect Unity between the two. And now God seems to be nowhere present. He is nowhere to be found while sin is just gearing up more and more. Sin is increasing 70 times 7. And the question, what is to be done, comes up. Where is God in all of this? I mean, truly, what of his promise to deliver a people from their sin by a seed? Because as far as the eye can see, in the city of Cain, there is none who fear God or the consequences of their sin. There is none who love God and delight in his way. There is none who lives and who loves God. All seems lost. And yet it is not. Verse 25 tells us, Adam knew his wife Eve again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For God has appointed another seed, 
Eve's hope is still in the promise of one to come. Even as she has lost one child to the devil and one child to his anger and wrath. She still believes in the promise of God that he will deliver them from this pain and misery. God promised that he would deliver a people through a a child that would come from Adam's loins. And even though Cain will have nothing to do with the promises of God, God's plan cannot and will not be thwarted. Though the servant's offspring sought to snuff out the line from which a victor was promised to God. God appoints another offspring, one who would come in the fullness of time, a time many years from this particular history, one who would come after many other grievous sins are committed against the brothers. But in that day, when the God-man would come and walk this earth, he would come not to take his brother's lives, not to hate his brethren and seek his own desires and his own agenda, but this one would come to lay down his life for his friends, to lay down his life for his brothers. When he did exactly what Cain was supposed to do, he humbled himself. And instead of taking the life of his brother, he gives his own. I am the good shepherd of the sheep. I lay down my life for them. And he does so that his own children might live and truly live in fellowship together as God's children. He has inherited a sweet fellowship for us, brothers and sisters. A fellowship where we who are the children of God may all enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father by the blood of the Son, this one who comes and makes atonement for our sins. And we enter his presence through humbly believing in faith, even as Abel himself did. People of God, as you go through the scriptures, Cain is remembered in the scriptures as one who is evil, one who murdered his brother for being righteous. A clear contrast is set up between Cain and the line of Seth or the line of Abel, the line of the wicked and the line of the righteous. There are two kinds of people in this world. And this contrast between those who belong to the city of God and those who belong to the city of man. And the rest of Genesis and all of Scripture will focus on this struggle that takes place between these two seeds, and yet one will rise victorious over the other. The Son of God will strike the death blow to the kingdom of darkness. He will crush Satan completely and fully. And Scripture tells us that the death blow has already been dealt with, or dealt, has already been given in the death and resurrection of Christ himself. The battle is decided. It is determined. The victory is won. Though we wait for that time now when the city of God will be fully established, the kingdom of man will pass away. Though we wait for that time, we know the outcome of events. But people of God, while we wait for that day, Scripture warns us, especially 1 John and Revelation, that it won't stop the people of God, the seed of God, from being hated by the world. The world hates the children of God for no other reason than for them being 
righteous. They despise the gathering of the brethren and they will seek to slay the brethren. In fact, 1 John tells us, if you want to know who belongs to the people of God and who does not, who belongs to which line, it says the people of God love the brethren. They love the people of God. They love the gathering of the saints. But those who persecute the church, those who hate you, they belong to the kingdom of Satan. People of God, you may face various trials. You may face various temptations. You might find yourself being hated by the world. In fact, I very much doubt that it's possible to get through this life as a Christian without these things being true. No matter what kind of persecution you may face, no matter what kind of hatred you may endure for being part of the family of God, you have an advocate before the Father who makes you perfect as you stand before him. And through his perfect life and death, you will enter the city of God whose maker and foundation is built by God himself. But until that day comes, until that day comes, when no longer is there any hatred between any brethren, may we seek to love our brothers, doing what is in their best interest, not hating them, not tearing them down, but building one another up together in love. May we love one another even as God loved us so much that he gave his very best, the only acceptable and pleasing offering that would make atonement for our sins. This offering that makes us acceptable before the Father, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. May we believe and rest upon him more fully. May we know what it means to be a child of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, who can understand the depths of the wisdom of the riches of the mercy of God. Father, who can understand your ways, for they seem so foreign to us, so strange are they. Father, we pray that you would cause a faith in us to be strengthened, that you would continue to grow our faith, that we might rest upon these truths about the people of God, that one came One came to deliver us from our sin, from our very selves. We pray, Lord, that you would humble us to continually depend upon him. We pray also that you would cause us to love our brothers as we are the children of God, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love those in our midst. We pray, Father, that the fellowship here would become sweet because of what you have done for us in Christ. Our Father, we thank you that you have sent forth your son as a champion for us, one who would lead the way back into your presence. And we long for that day where we may enter and dwell in your presence forevermore. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.